You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we are thankful for your word. We have come this morning. We have offered to you the sentiments of our hearts in the form of worship and praise, and we have sung to you that which we feel, that our desire is that you would be honored and glorified. And now we ask that you would speak to us, and we know that there is only one place we can look to hear you speak, and that is from your word. And we pray this morning that as we look at it and we open it, that our hearts would be open to it and that we would respond with obedience and love and honor to you. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin with the same disclaimer that I offered at the beginning of the adult Sunday school class, and that is that you can tell that my voice is weak and faltering, and I'm hoping that it gets to the end of our time together here this morning in God's Word. So if I seem a bit subdued, it's not because I'm trying to lull anybody to sleep. It's simply because I'm trying to make sure that I have enough voice left to pray at the end of all of this. So you'll need to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 26. The book of Acts, chapter 26. We are finishing up looking at the defense that Paul gives to King Agrippa in Caesarea in Acts, chapter 26. And we've spent quite a bit of time looking at some of the details in the chapter of his address. And we're finishing that up this morning. We'll be looking specifically at verses 19 through 26. Sorry, 19 through verse 23 of Acts chapter 26. And when you found your place, let's just read those verses together before we begin. Verse 19, So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. That's the end of his defense. The beginning of his defense begins in verse 1 of chapter 26, and You may remember the setting, the Apostle Paul standing before King Agrippa. He is on trial, and he has been on trial and in custody since Acts chapter 21 when he was arrested in the temple. And then through a series of trials, first before the Sanhedrin, and then before Felix, and then before Festus, and now before Agrippa, Paul has offered his defense of his ministry and of his message. And this is really not a legal trial as far as legal trials went because there were no accusers present. There were no accusations that were brought forth. It's just the Apostle Paul taking the opportunity to stand before Agrippa. And you may remember the setting. It's kind of a royal, pompous, uh, a big, ostentatious display in Caesarea. They all came together and all of the prominent men of the city lined up and, and were there to honor Agrippa because he is the last descendant of the Herodian dynasty in Herod's temple, in Herod's praetorium. And the Apostle Paul is brought in, and Agrippa saw this as his opportunity to satisfy his curiosity. Having wanted to hear Paul for a period of time, having heard about Paul, he wanted to hear Paul's own defense. And Festus needed Agrippa to help him write a letter because Paul had appealed his case and it was going to Rome. It was on Caesar's docket. Paul was going to go there and present his case and present his defense. 
and Festus needed to write a letter, and Agrippa comes in, and Agrippa says, great, this is my opportunity to hear somebody I've wanted to hear for quite some time. Paul accepts the invitation because it's his opportunity to preach Christ to a packed house. With all of the prominent men of the city and all of the all of Festus's court there and Agrippa's court and all of those people lined up, the Apostle Paul is brought in and he begins to give his defense before Agrippa. And he begins in verse 4 by talking about his upbringing and his childhood and how he was a Pharisee by birth and a Pharisee by training and he lived according to the strictest sect of his religion. And so strict was his obedience to the law and so strict was his passion and his zeal for God that when the Christians came on the scene in the early 30s and began to preach Jesus Christ crucified and that he was the Messiah and that salvation was by faith in him, the Apostle Paul, so zealous in his, in his Judaism, so zealous for his God, he decided to persecute that. And so beginning in verse 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul talks about his career of persecution and how he used to round up Christians and put them into prison and try and force them to blaspheme, but being so furiously enraged at them, he sought their very lives. Then beginning in verse 12, the Apostle Paul recounts to Agrippa what it was that changed him from an adversary to an advocate, from a persecutor to a preacher. On his way to Damascus, on his way pursuing Christians, even to foreign cities, he was confronted by that bright light which was brighter than the noonday sun, and he hit the dirt with all of those who were traveling with him, and the Lord Jesus right there confronted this persecutor of his church, with his sin and with his depravity and with his pride and with his arrogance, and Saul was crushed. And now beginning in verse 19, or then verse 12, sorry, verse 12 to 18, is Jesus commissioning Paul to preach, to preach his message and to take his message to the world. Now beginning in verse 19 through 23, we get the Apostle Paul's response to that command. And what is it? It can be summed up in one word, obedience. Obedience. Jesus said, Paul, for this reason I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness of the things that you have seen and in the things in which I will appear to you. And I want to send you to the Jews and I'm sending you to the Gentiles to turn them from darkness to light, to open their eyes, to turn them from the dominion of Satan to God so that they might have the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul, get up and go. And so how did Paul respond? Obedience. Verse 19, Paul says, So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. And the obedience of Saul of Tarsus, of the Apostle Paul, was demonstrated in three areas of his life. And I want you to look at them. In verses 19 and 20, we see his obedience demonstrated in his mission. He was obedient in his mission. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. He was obedient with the mission. Paul, go to the Gentiles. Paul says, that's what I did. King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to that heavenly vision. Notice how personal is Paul's address. Well, all of those people standing around, Festus is there and Festus is court and all of the prominent men of the city. This is the Roman capital on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire and all of those powerful men are there. But who is Paul there to witness to? King Agrippa. And he addresses Agrippa like he is the only one in the room. And throughout the address, he keeps addressing it to Agrippa almost as if in Paul's mind and in Agrippa's mind, all of these other people have sort of faded from the scene. It is as if Paul is witnessing to Agrippa and Agrippa alone. But he knows all of these other people are listening in. All of these other people are listening to this whole testimony that he's given. But Paul <clears throat> zeroes in on Agrippa. This is King Agrippa. I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Well, no kidding. 
That's kind of an understatement, isn't it? I didn't prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Would you disobey something like that? You're wandering along a dirt <laughs> desert road in the middle to a, on, a, on your way to the, a prominent city and all of a sudden the light from heaven comes and you're face down in the dirt and Jesus appears to you and says, look, enough is enough. You're mine and you can kick against the goads all you want, but I will have you and you're going to do what I'm asking you to do. So now this is what I'm going to have you to do. I want you to get up and I want you to get busy. I want you to go do X, Y, and Z. Paul says, I wasn't disobedient. Would you be disobedient to that? <laughs> of course he wasn't disobedient. That's an understatement, isn't it? What choice did he have but to obey? What, what would you do? He says, King Agrippa, I didn't disobey that. And what Paul is saying is from the moment of his conversion all the way into the end of his life and his ministry, when he finally was martyred for Jesus Christ, his life was characterized by obedience. I love the fact that right after the Apostle Paul talks about his conversion and what it was that brought him to faith in Christ, that he immediately mentions obedience. I think that that is a beautiful thing. Obedience. Why does Paul mention that? You know why Paul mentions that? Because obedience is the keystone. It is the mark. It is the capstone. It is the defining characteristic in the life of somebody who has been truly saved. Obedience. How can you be saved without obeying the command, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved? And how can an individual claim to be saved if he will not obey the individual whom he says is his master? Obedience. Obedience to Jesus Christ is the defining characteristic of a believer. And the Apostle Paul says, when I got saved, immediately I began to obey. I did not prove disobedient to that heavenly vision. Friends, you and I ought to disabuse ourselves. We ought to get rid of any notion that we have that we can come to Christ for salvation and that we can be saved and that we can be born again and that we can be changed from the inside out and that we can leave obedience at the door and forget about it or take it or leave it if we want. If an individual does not obey Jesus Christ, what right, what ground, what reason can they possibly have for assuming that they're saved? When you come to Christ, you come to Him for salvation and for lordship. And when you come to Christ, you come to Him and you say, He is my Master, and I will submit myself to Him, and I will yield myself to Him, and I will not kick against the goads. You can't simply accept salvation and say, okay, obedience, that's secondary, that's ancillary. Obedience is something that I may take, I may leave, I may choose to, I may not choose to. I will leave that up to me. That's not true. It's not true at all. Paul says, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Friends, am I saying that you need to be perfect to be a Christian? No. But obedience should be the defining characteristic of your life. It means that you hate sin. And when sin comes up in your life, you repent of it, you, you get rid of it, you, you shun it, you hate it. You want to be obedient. Your life is characterized by obedience. doesn't mean you're perfect. We all have struggles. We all struggle with things. We all have failings. We all fail from time to time. But every genuine believer is an obedient individual. Show me somebody who is born again. Somebody, show me somebody who has changed. Show me somebody who has been converted and given newness of life. And I will show you somebody who longs for obedience and loves to be obedient to their new master. And you show somebody who says, I don't want anything to do with Christ's mastery over my life. And I will show you somebody who does not appreciate the grace of God and probably has not received the grace of God. Obedience. I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul says, the first thing I did after I got converted was I stood up and I was obedient. Do you realize that even before his conversion, the one thing that marked the life of the Apostle Paul was obedience? you realize that? You say, how, how could he be obedient while he was persecuting the church? Listen, friends, he thought he was doing God's service in doing that. He thought his job, his responsibility as a Pharisee, was to suppress heresy and heretics and apostates, and that's how he viewed Christians. 
And when it came to the law, he was blameless. He was a Pharisee. Circumcised on the eighth day, keeper of the law, raised and lived according to the strictest sect of his religion. Paul's life, even before his conversion, was aimed at obedience. And he was concerned about obedience and being obedient to God. But then it was the outward characteristics and the outward restrictions of the law that forced him to be obedient. But he had a life that was aimed at obedience. And once he realized that the person he was persecuting was his God, he immediately changed directions and said, now I'm going to obey the new master. When he said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. The Apostle Paul right then and there said, I have a new master. I thought I was being obedient to the Lord before. Now I'm aiming my life in obedience to Jesus Christ. So I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, King Agrippa. But he obeyed. He obeyed. you think you can be saved without obedience? Friends, if you're saved, obedience is the fruit of your salvation. So obedient was he in his mission that when Jesus said, I want you to go to the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul in verse 20 says he kept declaring both to those at Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout the regions of Judea and even to the Gentiles. This is what he did. Jesus said, go and preach, go and proclaim. I'm sending you to them to tell them these things so that they might turn. And Paul says, that's exactly what I did. I went and I declared to everybody. He went into Damascus. You know what the first thing he did was? Acts chapter 9 says, after he received his sight, immediately went into the synagogues and he began to declare that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Acts chapter 9. Paul didn't wait. He didn't say, well, you know what? I've been a persecutor of the church. Maybe I should sort of cool my jets for a while, give people an opportunity to get used to me. He walked into the synagogue and the people in the synagogue thought he was there to round up Christians. And he got up in front and began to declare to everybody that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Instantly obedient in his service. Instantly obedient to do that which the Lord had commanded him to do. That is the defining mark of a believer. That is the defining characteristic of a child of God and somebody who has made Jesus Christ his master is that they are obedient. Not that they're perfect, but that they're obedient. Long for obedience. Love obedience. And then when we see in our lives something that where we disobey, it should bring grief to us, mourning to us. The Apostle Paul did this in Damascus. He was obedient even, it says, in Jerusalem. After three years, Acts chapter 9 says he went back to Jerusalem. The Pharisees there, all of his former buddies on the, on, the, on the Sanhedrin, didn't want anything to do with him. And none of the Christians wanted anything to do with him until Barnabas grabbed him by the arm and took him into Peter and James to sort of force Paul into the inner circle. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. But he went into Jerusalem and he began declaring there that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the Jews tried to kill him. But he was obedient in his mission, doing exactly what the Lord said he should do. Acts chapter 13, he was finally called even to the Gentiles. Obedient even to the Gentiles. And look how Paul characterizes, generally speaking, his message. Look at the end of verse 20. Declaring that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders, the shore at Miletus, the apostle Paul says, this is what I did, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the two sort of train tracks of his message and his ministry. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the two things that he proclaimed. And here we're brought back again to repentance. I was declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent and that they should turn to God. And that's essentially what repentance is, isn't it? Repentance, as I've said before, is having a change of mind, a change of thinking about sin as pertains to sin so that it affects your behavior in your life. 
So that having once walked toward darkness and in darkness, when you repent, you have a change of mind and a change of thinking about sin that manifests itself in your life so that you turn from sin to God. And that is the essence of salvation. It is turning to the Lord from your idols to serve the living and the true God. And throughout the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, for instance, it speaks of salvation in terms of people turning to God. Acts 9.35, And all who lived at Lydia and Sharon saw him, that is Peter, and they turned to the Lord. That's repentance. You're turning. You're turning from something to something else. They turned to the Lord. Acts chapter 11, verse 21 says, The hand of the Lord was with them, speaking of Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. In Acts chapter 14, when Paul went into Lystra and they started to offer up sacrifices to him, thinking that they were Zeus and Hermes, the chief gods, Paul says, man, what what are you doing? We've come here to tell you to turn from these things to the living God. That's repentance. Paul preached repentance. Friends, when you present the gospel to people, do you tell them and remind them that they have to repent? Do you remind them of that? Or do you just say, God loves you and he wants you to be saved, so place your faith in Jesus today. Do you leave out the hard part of the cross, which is obedience and repentance and coming to him as master and Lord as well as Savior? Do you leave that out? When you sit down with somebody and you say, you know what, you want to be saved? You're going to have to turn from your sin because Jesus Christ will not deliver you from sin that you will not forsake. You cling to your sin. You can't have him as your master. you got to abandon that. you got to get rid of that. You have to turn from that. You have to turn from your idols to serve the living and the true God. Is that part of your gospel? That's part of the gospel of the apostles. You want Christ? Repentance toward God. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two things always go together. Always go together. And that's what Paul preached. You have to turn from your sin. You love your sin, you can have your sin. But you can't have Christ and your sin. It has to be one or the other. You have to make a choice. You have to turn from your sin to the living and the true God. Paul was faithful in his mission, ministry and mission. Look what he says at the end of verse 20, that they should also perform deeds appropriate to repentance. What are deeds appropriate to repentance? What are deeds that give evidence of one's repentance? Fruit of the Spirit would be a good place to start, wouldn't it? I wish we had a, wish I had a whole sermon just talk about deeds appropriate to repentance. When John the Baptist brought, was baptizing all of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and they were coming to him in repentance, understanding that when they got baptized, it was a baptism of repentance, John said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, perform or show the fruits of repentance. He said, don't just come here and make a show of repentance. But if you're going to repent and you come here and you're baptized and you repent, then demonstrate the fruits of repentance. Perform deeds that are appropriate to repentance. A hunger for the Word of God, a love for worship, service to the Lord, walking in holiness and obedience, sanctification, and a love for the fellowship of His people, and prayer and compassion and grace and loving kindness. These are the deeds that are appropriate to repentance. You know there's such a thing as shallow repentance? and a turning to God that's even shallower, that never manifests itself in deeds of repentance. I'm reading a book right now. It's called... Uh, I just forgot the title of it. What's that? Revival and Revivalism. I, I don't read the cover. I read the stuff inside the covers. That's why... I, Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. And the subtitle of the book really says it all. Revival and Revivalism. The subtitle is The Making and marring of American evangelicalism. And it is a history of American Christianity and evangelicalism from the year 1700 to the year 1858. 
And it covers the first and the second great awakening. Now, the difference between the first and the second great awakening are like night and day. Okay, under the first great awakening in the 1740s, you had men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. And here was their philosophy of revival. The philosophy of revival is that through the preaching of the word and prayer, God visits those ordinary means at times in very extraordinary manners. And you will have large turnings of the Lord, which are all the responsibility of God, and a revival is the work of God. And that sometimes he visits the ordinary means with extraordinary blessings. So that in the preaching of the word and in the prayer of his people, there are times when there is a spiritual awakening and you have a revival. That first great awakening lasted for about four or five years. Then later on in the second great awakening, beginning in about 1800, 1798 through 1835, you had this whole, this massive shift in the way people viewed revivals and revivalism. And during the second great awakening, you had people who were coming to faith in Christ and you had all of these emotional manifestations. Now under the men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, when somebody was in a church and there was this massive emotionalism and there was this massive repentance and people crying and weeping over their tears, they would stand back and they would say, that may indeed be the work of God. That may indeed be genuine repentance, but let's see what happens after the emotions fade away. Let's see what happens when the emotions are gone and when the moment has passed. And then you will know them by their fruits. Because if there is fruits of repentance, if there are deeds appropriate to repentance, then we'll know that there has been a genuine conversion. That didn't happen during the Second Great Awakening. With men like Charles Finney leading the Second Great Awakening, you had people actually promoting the emotion of it. And then you have them publishing the numbers saying, in this meeting we had 400 people get saved. And in this meeting we had 500 people get saved. And then they started having tent meetings and revival meetings and week-long meetings and open-air meetings. And then they started to use the altar call. Do you know that that's where the altar call was invented in the 1820s? Do you know that prior to 1820, the existence and the use of an altar call was virtually non-existent in any church? And it is a distinctly American invention the Second Great Awakening, not until 1835. After 1835, they said that was the, it was, the altar call was the hallmark of American revival. Nowhere else in the world was it invented, but right here in the good old USA in 1820. You probably thought that the altar call was handed down to us by the apostles, didn't you? That, that Peter and Paul had started that and then handed it down and, and that we better carry it on. That's not true. Not till America in the 1820s. 1830s was it used. And you know why? You get people to come forward and you get them up there weeping and mourning and you've got a genuine convert. And there were some who were saying, wait, 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 wait. Let's wait till the emotion wears off and let's see if we got genuine repentance. Because you can have a very shallow repentance. You can have people who are sorry for their sin, mourning over their sin, hating their sin, but never awaken to spiritual life, just hating the sin. And then when the emotion wears off, and the wave is gone, and the tent meetings have dissipated, and they go home, then you find out if you've got a genuine convert or not after they begin to perform or not perform the deeds that are appropriate to repentance. Paul says, I was obedient, and I was declaring to everybody there must be repentance, and there must be deeds performed that are appropriate to repentance. Paul says you need to turn from your sin, and you need to give evidence or demonstration that your repentance was a God-wrought, God-honoring, spirit-moved repentance. Then you know you've got a convert. He was faithful in his mission. Second, he was faithful in his suffering. Look at verse 21. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. Paul says, the reason I was arrested, the reason I was seized in the temple is because I went about preaching repentance and the people should perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Now, is that why he was arrested? 
Is that the reason that they gave for arresting him? Do you remember back in Acts chapter 21? I've said this so many times, you can probably recite it. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people, against our law, against our temple, and he has defiled this holy place by bringing a Gentile into it. That was what they said was the problem, that Paul had defiled the temple and that he was preaching against the people and the law in the temple. That was all a ruse and a pretext. Paul says, the real issue is that I went to both Jews and Gentiles and I encouraged them to turn to God. And for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. You know what the real issue was? The real issue was that Paul went to people who were not Jews and he offered them a Jewish Messiah without any law attachments. A law-free gospel. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the Sabbath. You don't have to keep the ceremonial laws. You just come and place your faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone for salvation and He will save you. You repent and you turn to God. No attachments, no qualifications. You come and and truly repent and turn to God and He will save you. That's what Paul preached. And the Jews said, you can't offer them our Jewish Messiah without all of our Jewish culture and customs. You're preaching against our law people in the temple. So they arrested him. And that was the thing that led to him standing before Agrippa. But that was all a ruse. But Paul puts his finger right on the heart of the issue. He says, this is the reason I was arrested, King Agrippa. It's because I went to people, Jew and Gentile alike, and told them to repent, turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And the Jews got jealous of that, and they seized me, and they tried to put me to death. The phrase, tried to put me to death, means to manhandle in such a way that death is inevitable. To manhandle in such a way that death is inevitable. That's what they did. Remember what they did outside the temple? They took him out there and they were beating him like a borrowed mule trying to kill him before Lysias got in to save him and to rescue him. And they were trying to manhandle him and beat him in such a way that death would inevitably follow. He said they tried to put me to death. And so King Agrippa, verse 22, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand testifying to you. He was faithful not only in his mission, he was faithful in his suffering. And listen, what was the one thing that caused his suffering? It was what he did as a ministry, right? If Paul had simply just shut up, all of his suffering would have gone away. You realize that? If he would have just shut his mouth and said nothing, all of his suffering would have gone away. The one thing that caused his suffering was the one thing that he was committed to doing. Why? Because he had two options. I can either disobey the Lord or I can face the wrath of men. Those are your two options. I can disobey the Lord Or I can face the wrath of men. But if I'm going to be obedient to the Lord, then men are going to hate me. And if I'm going to be obedient to men so that men will like me, I will displease my Lord. Those are your two options. Which one would you choose in such a situation? Which one is, to us, most of the time, the most alluring and the most tempting of choices? It is easier for us and sometimes more alluring for us to disobey the Lord rather than to face the fear and the wrath and the discredit from our friends or our family or our co-workers it's easier to displease the Lord. But Paul only had two choices. Displease the Lord or face the wrath of men. And so he says, I'm faithful in my suffering. And I know I'm doing the very thing that's causing my suffering. But this is what Jesus has called me to do. And so I will do it rather than be disobedient. Because he dare not be disobedient to the heavenly vision. Faithful in his mission. Faithful in his suffering. Third thing I want you to notice how he's faithful in his message Look at verse 22. He had stand and, and to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. That by reason of his resur- that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul does two things in those verses. 
First of all, he defends his gospel to Agrippa. And then second, he gives to Agrippa the content of his message. He defends his message and then he gives the content of it. Look how he defends it. He says to Agrippa, I have said nothing. I stand today before both small and great. In the synagogue, on the street level, he witnessed also not only in the synagogue, but on places like the Areopagus with all of the philosophers and before Festus and before Felix and now before Agrippa, all the great men. He says, I've stood before everybody, small and great. As long as God gives me breath and as long as he helps me, I will stand and I will testify to this one fact. And here is his defense. I have said nothing except what Moses and the prophets said was going to take place. Now think of that for a second. Paul is standing before, if Rome had a theological genius, it would have been Agrippa. He's an expert in all things Jewish, all the culture, the customs, and everything pertaining to the Jews. Agrippa is Rome's man on the scene. He's the guy that is the expert in all of this. And Paul is standing before Agrippa, who is familiar with Moses. He is familiar with the prophets. He is familiar with all things Jewish. And he says to Agrippa, I have said nothing that Moses and the prophets did not say was going to take place. Essentially, he's saying this. Every element of my message, every element of my gospel, every detail of it can be defended from the Old Testament. When it comes to the death of Christ, when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, when it comes to faith, when it comes to repentance, when it comes to going to the Gentiles, everything I've said, everything I've done is simply the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. Now, saying that before Agrippa sort of opens the Apostle Paul up because if there's anybody who could have reproved Paul or began an argument with Paul at that point, it would have been Agrippa. And he would have been on good ground to do that. But here's what Paul is thinking. Paul is trusting and he knows that as he says this to Agrippa, Agrippa knows full well what Paul's talking about. Paul's familiar with all the passages. He's saying to Agrippa, everything I've said comes from the Old Testament. I'm not an apostate Jew. I'm not a heretical Jew. I am a Jew in keeping with all of my Old Testament Judaism. I am a Jew who is simply proclaiming to you the fulfillment of everything Moses said was going to take place and everything the prophets said was going to take place. That's his defense. Now look at the content of it, and there's three things. The death of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah, and the proclamation of light to the Gentiles that the Christ had to suffer and rise again. And the Apostle Paul could have gone to Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or any one of the prophets or the Psalms that spoke of the death of Christ. The Apostle Paul could have defended the death of Christ from all of the book of Leviticus and all of the sacrifices and the Passover lamb and all of that. He could have taken a grip into any of those passages. And we've looked in recent weeks at some of the passages in the Old Testament that spoke of the death of the Messiah. We're not going to rehash those. But Paul says the death of Christ is foretold in the Old Testament. He who was bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the one who bore our stripes, took our punishment in himself on that tree. Second, that the resurrection of Christ was foretold in the Old Testament. Could have gone to Psalm 16, could have gone to Isaiah 53 and showed Agrippa there where the resurrection of the Messiah had to have taken place. And the third element of his gospel, not element of his gospel, the third part of his message that he's defending is the proclamation of light to the Gentiles. And right there he quotes the book of Isaiah the last half of the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah portrays Jesus Christ as a suffering servant, as the servant who would do all of the Father's will. And in the last half of the book of Isaiah, in connection with the Messiah that Isaiah was promising, Isaiah recorded that there would be a proclamation of light, that there would be a a manifestation of light to the Gentiles, and that this Messiah would bring light to all the nations. Like Isaiah 42, verse 6, where it says, I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness, I will hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And same thing in Isaiah 49. 
I will appoint you as a light to the nations. So Paul says it's the death of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah, and the fact that I take that message to the Gentiles. All of that was foretold by Moses and the prophets. My whole life, my whole ministry, my whole message, all of it is Old Testament. All of it comes from Moses. All of it comes from the prophets. And Agrippa, you know that full well because Agrippa was familiar with Moses and the prophets. Now that's a convincing that's quite a convincing presentation of the truth, is it not, from the Apostle Paul to Agrippa? Is it any wonder a little later on Agrippa says, you know, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Because Agrippa knew that what Paul was saying was true. But Agrippa had too much to lose by becoming a Christian. And we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. Friends, the the key question that the Apostle Paul is answering before Agrippa is this. Paul, why do you preach Christ crucified? Why do you preach Christ risen again? Why do you take Christ to the Gentiles when that is the very thing that causes your suffering? When that is the very reason that you're on trial here? If you would just shut up about the resurrection, if you would just not go to the Gentiles, if you would just get married, have kids, settle down, get a normal life, go to Jerusalem, hang out there, go to the synagogue, just be a normal human being. If you would give up all of this, if you would just do that, all of your troubles would go away. The trials would go away. The opposition would go away. The attempts on your life would go away. All of that would go away. All of your suffering would vanish, Paul. Why do you do it? You know the answer? Because Scripture demands it. Paul says, you go to Moses and the prophets, I've been given a message. And not only does Scripture demand it, but Christ commanded it. So Paul, for this reason I have appointed you to be a witness and a minister. And you can kick against the goats, Paul, but you're going to go. And Paul says, I can disobey the Lord or I can face the wrath of man. I will face the wrath of man because that's what, 70 years, right? I don't want to disobey the Lord. So Paul says, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Friends, you and I have been given a message to take to the world, to the nations, to the people, to your co-workers, to your family, to your friends. And now we have a choice. We can be obedient to the Lord, or we can face the wrath, or disobedient to the Lord, or we can face the wrath of men. And what are you going to choose? I would choose obedience to the Lord. Friends, do not be disobedient to the heavenly directive, but be obedient in your mission, be obedient in your suffering, be obedient in your message all to the praise of His glorious grace, to the honor of our great God and King. That's our job. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. Thank You that we have a message and thank You that You have given it to us. Lord, we just pray that You would extend to us the grace to be obedient, to be obedient in Christ and our message and our mission and to have a passion and a love for doing that which You've commanded us to do. And that is to preach a gospel of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and repentance toward God and faith in Him. Thank You for that love. Thank You that You have turned our hearts from the wrong to the right. Thank You that You've brought us into light. And thank You that You have saved us to serve You. We ask all of this and for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.